Oh. Am I still echoing? Yeah, you are. Damn, Echo. Don't look at me. Wait, keep, talk it, wait, keep talking. Is, yeah, it's not so bad. Like, there's a little bit of a delay. I can hear you outside of the mic, but it's on. It's, I don't know. Go. You talk. You say something now. Hi. My name is Don. I do a podcast with Ben. This is my, this is my, <clears throat> trying to get a little vocal fry here. Because uh, I was <clears throat> karaoke <Yes>. last night. <clears throat> was that your Tom Waits? That's my, that's my something. That's, okay. I think this will work. Okay, I think this is going to be okay. Can, can, some, can somebody go close the door? Well, this is this is a show. <laughs> wow, this is uh, this is like really. Uh, this is going to be get, a good one, Ben. I can't I'm wait. Getting comfy. I'm getting comfier. So, so before we like really dive into it, how late were you at karaoke last night? Uh, like, uh, the bars in Utah closed at like uh, like eleven thirty six or something. Something very specific. <laughs> no, uh, I was at karaoke until 1 a.m. Um, but uh, the something I've learned about Utah is, I, I'm sure many in the in the room and in the audience who's been to Utah know about this, that uh, you can't buy beer that's more than 4%. So there, and I um, stumbled upon a beer deal at the karaoke bar last night, which I didn't know until the end. Uh, which was I was drinking uh, PBR, a uh, Pass Blue Ribbon, because it was a dive bar, and I wanted to drink dive bar beer, uh, and it was uh, a dollar. And so I had I spent a total of $4 last night on my karaoke um, experience and uh, got home at 1. And, um, and you were barely, like, barely drunk. Yeah. Barely buzzed because no, it, it was PBR. Yeah. Exactly. It was, I don't – I mean, you can, you can get some – high test PBR, just not, not in the state of Utah, I think. Um, so yeah, it was about, it was about one. I, I did, uh, so, so for those of you who have, um, listened to other IAFP food safety talks, we almost always do this. Uh, we record this the day after we karaoke, I think the last four years this has happened. So, um, I, uh, I, I sang a few songs. Dawn did a, a fantastic version. So the one, one of the things is like, um, here you, you, it's like fight club where you don't talk about karaoke if you, like, cause karaoke, it doesn't exist or something. Um, the first rule of karaoke is there is no karaoke. Uh, but Dawn did a, a really, really, uh, spoken word, William Shatner style version <laughs> of, uh, a Neil Young song, um, uh, after the gold rush. <laughs> so what, so that's a, that's a reference. Uh, and I get the reference. What is the, what's the Shatner spoken word? What was the actual Shatner spoken word? song that he did do you oh, remember he did so many um okay. yeah but let me find out he did like i think like um uh, where was it? Oh. so google says there's something called shatner's spoken word album so oh there's a whole right, we'll, there we'll, we'll, we'll link to william shatner's musical career on wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it was good i didn't the arrangement that you used i had not heard before so that's it was, <laughs> It was it was quite it was quite uh, is compelling. So I thought maybe this was a William Shatner arrangement that you had taken and were practicing all year from last year. Um, so anyway, it was it was quite it was quite awesome. So I yeah, and so I started um, and then once I started speaking because I didn't never started singing. I just I just couldn't start singing because I was speaking and it was it seemed to be going okay. Like I felt great. like I was, I was doing a dramatic interpretation. And uh, you know, and I picked I picked after the goal rush because as we know, um, Neil Young can't sing. It turns out I can sing worse than him. <laughs> anyway, you just did a spoken word. It was awesome. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so it was it was quite a uh, as car- as IFP karaoke's go. I thought it was uh, it was quite a good uh, experience as, as always. Um, while I'm at a karaoke bar, I think why would I go to a bar that doesn't have karaoke? Because it's fairly compelling to watch people, um, and there are often really good singers there and so last night there were, there were people that were not with not us not uh, not with us well although there were some good singers with us too but uh who are like fantastic local local talent in the karaoke bar um singing great songs and i think after you left there was a whole like journey um foreigner uh, combination which was great uh as well so um yeah it was uh, it was it was good it was comical and I have to say too, the the surprising it's surprising what songs people know and what songs like a lot of people know. And the one that really surprised me that we had like multiple generations of people singing at the top of their lungs, including me, was uh, Black Sabbath War Pigs. <laughs> yes. Like like it was it was amazing. It's like from the, the youngest person to the oldest person, we all we all knew that song. And the people in between too. It was great. Yeah. Yeah, that was true. I'd never heard War Pigs uh, done at karaoke before, and it was uh, it, it became almost uh, immediately like, oh, this is a fan favorite. You should do that. This is a good choice. Yeah, I I, I did uh, some uh, Sweet Caroline mainly for that exact reason. It's not not the greatest uh, karaoke song, but you can always get everyone else singing um, with it. And uh, it, there's a theatrical part of it where you get to hold the microphone out and put it pointed at people. So, and uh, I, and I just want you to know that I ha- my feelings were hurt a little bit. Like if Renee was there, I would understand why you'd sing Sweet Caroline with Renee, because that's a thing now. But yes. you sang Sweet Caroline with someone that was not me. I'm sorry. It was, uh, I don't know, I'm uh, a serial uh, uh, karaoke uh, cheater. <laughs> it's just like when you do podcasts without me. <laughs> no, no comment. Right, 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 yeah. Um, so, so how's your how's your IAFP been? What's the what, how are things? It's it's been a it's been a really good it's been a really good meeting. I uh, I have you know, and as I, I think I might have shared with you, and I've shared with other people, it has been a meeting that was I was I've been busy, but I have not been so busy as to be overwhelmed. Like I felt like I had enough to do. And I had time between those things to do other things, and I had time to just sit and talk with people. And I had, like, I scheduled some things to talk with people, and then other people were just like, hey, do you have a few minutes? I'm like, yeah, I absolutely have a few minutes. I would love to sit and talk with you. And so, um, yeah, it's been, it's been good. And I've, and I've not, I'm not like, I'm, I get behind on email, which stresses me out, but I'm not, like, super behind. And, uh, yeah, I feel like it's been a good meeting. Yeah, I've had the same, I guess, a similar kind of experience. I had a few, um, I only had one one talk to prepare for and then a couple of roundtables. And um, I, I find those very, um, you never know exactly where they're going to go. I don't, I don't really spend a whole lot of time preparing much more than sort of opening remarks and thinking about what I'm going to lead off with. But but often we, we were... Um, part of a session on um, online grocery stores and recalls. And and it was very, it was cool to be part of that one because the questions that came out in the discussion were not exactly where I thought it was going to go. Um, and, but it's, it's a little less stressful to, to do that. I, I always find the nervousness of trying to prepare a 30 minute talk that, that, and stay on schedule and make sure that you tell a full story in those 30 minutes. And, and sometimes it's not, the, it's I, often at, at IFP for me, it's like the first time that I'm putting a bunch of stuff together in the same, same way. So, um, I've only, I, I didn't have to 
do a whole lot of preparation for, for any of the stuff that I was doing and have had a really nice like time just chatting and interacting with people and catching up. It's, it's been, I don't know, low, lower key than, than in past years. Yeah, and like you, um, I've been, um, I think, almost exclusively either moderating roundtables, in roundtables, or attending roundtables, which is, mm. which I think is reflective of like the whole. And I, and one of the things that was was a was something I wanted to promote. Uh, I think when I was on the program committee, and then when I was on the board, is to really try to do more with roundtables because I think that they um, they really do they really what are what IAFP is all about. And before we leave <clears throat> the topic of IAFP, I want to come back to uh, to ACUF's lecture, but I want to talk a little bit more about roundtables first. And like you. I like them because I can do minimal preparation, kind of like doing this podcast, right? <laughs> um, uh, and then um, I'm sitting there getting ready to do the one on hazard analysis and risk assessment when I'm a panelist, and uh, I see Bob Buchanan comes in. He doesn't listen, by the way. Um, I see Bob Buchanan comes in, and he's got pages of notes, and he's been preparing, and, and immediately I felt like, oh, I'm doing this wrong. I'm doing, and, then I, and then I'm like, no, wait a minute. I'm not, I'm not doing it wrong at all. I had plenty of good stuff to say, um, and it didn't really matter that I did. It wasn't that I didn't prepare. It's like I've been preparing my whole life to be on that round table. <laughs> it's like every day is a round table. <laughs> It's true. It's true. I, that's a, that's a Sheryl Crow song. Right there, I think, right? I think every, it is. Every yeah, day's round table. Rounding yeah. table. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I find them more, in a like intellectually or maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's not even the right word, but engaging as a um, as a presenter as well because it makes me listen and think about what other people are talking about. Um, to help that dialogue go in a different direction or, or where, wherever I want to, you know, add my, um, analysis or whatever it is to it. I, I, maybe, maybe we're, maybe podcasting has helped with roundtables for us. Like maybe that's the, like, that's kind of what we do. Yeah. Because you, you, it's, 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 it's like, it's like juggling, right. Or, or walking and chewing gum or something. You have to be listening. You have to be paying attention to what the person is saying at least enough. And then you have to be thinking about what you're going to say next. And, and maybe also like looking stuff up on your computer or your phone. Right. And it's uh, yeah, it's a good, it's a good skill set. And, and speaking of roundtables, I also want to say, so I, I was moderating one roundtable. I was speaking in another roundtable and I was a, uh, a roundtable crasher most recently in the session I just came from because I had stuff to say and I couldn't and, and, I, and I don't know I think I, anyway I tried to not I had, but I had like valuable stuff to say and so I, I, I probably interjected myself too much into the one uh, that we just uh, finished just before this on predatory publishing and it was it was again really good it's a it's a topic that we've talked about at IAFP repeatedly um, with some of the same people again and again and I've been on the panel in the past and I was in the audience this time but again I had thought I had stuff to contribute and we they were talking about predatory publishing and talking about um, uh, predatory conferences. And uh, yeah, and it was just a really, uh, really good, really good discussion. And so um, uh, I encourage people to, I think, I'm not sure if it was recorded, but if it was, certainly check it out. If not, there were a couple of uh, links that I tweeted out, um, the older articles that I, that, I, that I linked to, but they were relevant, uh, I think, to the topic of predatory publishing. Cool. Yeah, I had uh, I had a student presenting in another session, so I was in there and missed out on the predatory one because when the uh, organizers or a couple of the organizers, um, Matt Moore and Chip Manuel, started putting stuff together for that, um, we were we were exchanging a bunch of emails and I was looking forward to it. But as is the challenge of IAFP, there's always like a million things going on at the same time, and 
Um, it's, I, I think as you and I have talked a little bit about in the past, the big step, um, four or five years ago of recording these sessions has made it so there's less stress around picking those, those items that, uh, to go at. So it's, it's nice to be able to just, uh, think about, Hey, later I'll, I'll go and, and check and see if those recordings, uh, were up for those roundtables and, and I'll, uh, listen to them at another time. Yeah. So you want you want to talk about Acuff? Yeah. So he's a was, he's a he's a he's a sharp dresser. He, it, wow. He's, he's, he's a handsome man. He's from Texas. What do you expect? Don't mess with Texas. Uh, he's he is a handsome man. He uh, so he he delivered the uh, Ivan Parkin lecture, which is uh, for for those who have not been to IAFP, I, the the real keynote kickoff to the to the entire conference, and it's. Um, it, this is my 17th IAFP, and you've been to many more, Don, because you're way older than I am. Uh, but it goes into a a, 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 a <laughs> so loud. Uh, it goes into this. Um, like I do the same thing every year, which is arrive sometime on Saturday and um, go to the welcome reception, uh, pick and choose a bunch of PDGs to go to on Sunday, and then go, go to this opening session. And the, there, there have been a few, and I, I'm not going to highlight which ones, but in recent years I have not gone to the, the Ivan Parkin, mainly because they just, they've missed the mark for me. And um, I, I knew for sure, just knowing Gary, that, that, that this year's was one I wanted to make sure I went to. And, and so I, I did not... I did not bail and, and end up at a, at a bar across the road, which I've done in the past. Um, and I'm really, really glad I did, I didn't, uh, uh, skip out on it because I thought, um, Gary has a, as a way of formulating a story and, and being able to, um, not, not just like fill that Ivan Park in time, but really put together something that's super compelling and emotional. And I, it was, um, it was right up there with the, the best one that I'd seen. Um, and you know, maybe, um, uh, ever. Um, and his, his message was, uh, was really cool. Sort of all about, um, food safety heroes and how IAFP, not just as an organization, uh, or not just as a conference, but as an organization, it has this, uh, family kind of feel to it. And, and the people that, that we read their papers or they do good, good work in food safety, seminal type of stuff. They're all here and approachable and, and, and how that's like not, it's not brand new. It's like something I experienced 15, 18 years ago and students are, are experiencing again today. And Gary experienced it when, when he was, um, much younger, much, you know, even probably much younger than me. Um, and, uh, it was, I, I don't know. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty, uh, pretty phenomenal. Yeah, and and I I did too, and I so I still have very clear uh, recollection of the first time that I ever heard Gary talk, and it was before I knew, before he knew me certainly, and before um, uh, I don't think I'd ever like met him, like met him, um, and I just remember, and it was on indicator organisms or something, and it was just a really good talk. Like he, I mean Gary. Um, is is like a real like consummate professional, right? I mean, and, and I you know we I was joking about him being a sharp dresser, but you know this is a guy that is really 
I mean, you know, I did my, my best to represent IAP in, in my style, and but Gary is just very, very polished and just a very accomplished speaker, and so I was going to go no matter, and, and now he's become a friend, right, because we've served on the board together, or we've both served on the board and I've gotten to know him pretty well. <clears throat> And he, um, I, so I knew he was going to give a good talk, and I was very, I was very curious, like what what he was going to say about mm. chopsticks, okay? Which I think was the whole the whole hook to, to bring you into the, the the talk anyway, and and so yeah, it was a very, it was not a talk, it was a talk, not about microbiology or food microbiology, but about the people in food microbiology, and so and I thought that that was very interesting and, and kind of a bold choice. And now I'm really very curious to see uh, what Emery McNamara is going to say because her her talk for the Silliker lecture. So for those that don't know, um, the the Ivan Parkin lecture and the John H. Silliker lecture are the bookends on the meeting, right? They're they're large keynote talks, one at the beginning, one at the end. And Emery's talk is entitled "Heroes Past and Future," and so obviously tying into that the heroes theme. Um, but the the other thing that I, that I, I wanted to which I found kind of surprising. So I was sharing some some text messages with um, uh, a friend of ours uh, who's who's a, a been on the podcast before, and uh, and she was indicating that there were some people that really um, did not like the uh, did not like it as a topic, and I guess they were wanting something that was a little bit more um, microbiology focused, and and then did did really did not agree with his. Uh, his particular choice of uh, of a topic, um, and apparently they talked about it some at the um, um, committee uh, a PDG chairs or program committee meeting this morning. So I, I, oh just, I, thought, it was, I thought it was very interesting that that people yeah. didn't like it. Um, yeah, and hmm. people people saying people, well, certainly a number of people I've talked to thought it was a home run. Other people thought it was not a home run, but better than some others recently. Um, and then some people just didn't like it, didn't like a, the topic of mentorship or mentoring or interaction with people in IAP as a topic. And I just, I don't get that. Yeah. Oh, that's, I hadn't, that, that surprises me. Like I hadn't heard anything, anybody that I've talked to um, about it. And maybe it's because the circles that we were, that I run in, we have similar tastes or something, but, um, everybody who, who was there, um, that I talked to, I think, uh, uh, were, shared, shared our, our uh, same, um, ideas about how, how, how great it was. I, so I have a question for you because this is IFP and I get to ask you questions. Um, so you, you've never, um, delivered the, the Ivan Parkin lecture. I've never delivered the Ivan Parkin lecture. What would you talk about? Well, so before I talk about that, okay, um, I do, I do want to say if, if there are people that listen that did not like the Parkin lecture, I would like to hear from you. I mean, not, not to defend the choice or to defend Gary, but I just would like to hear about it. So, um, so that said, um, I have been thinking, I've been thinking a lot about this because of the issue that, uh, the people didn't like what Gary said and what would I do if I gave a Parkin lecture? And, I gave a talk at this meeting a number of years ago to the student PDG at the student luncheon. And that talk was, it was not about heroes or mentorship. It was about how to utilize the resources that is, that are IAFP at the meeting, right? And so what you wanted to do, I talked about to, as advice to students, basically how to network. And I, th- I think if if you ask me today to give the Parkin lecture tomorrow, <laughs> what I, which, would, which would be completely inappropriate because it won't be for another year, um, <laughs> I would I would I would do it on networking. And but I think to give it a microbiology spin, I don't wanna, I don't want to share my idea with you. You can steal my idea. Wait a minute. You, no, you, I'm not. No, I can no, do your all right, idea. All right, so, yeah. um, but I would. But <laughs> nobody steal my idea. Okay. Yeah. Copyright. 
Um, uh, but I think, if you, I think if you just say copyright, it means that no one can steal your idea, right? Yeah, yeah, That's how yeah, it yeah. works, right? Yeah, they have to pay you. They yeah, have to pay now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and um, what I would do, I would do something about networking, but to, but to please the microbiology, you know, uh, lovers in the audience, I would also talk about cross-contamination, and I would talk about spread of disease. I would talk about maybe some of our work on norovirus transfer, maybe, you know, maybe talk about uh, hand shaking and hand washing, because um, uh, I think that would be kind of interesting, um, and talk about networking. And also, I would probably call you, because I would also want to steal the amazing norovirus game that we played, um, and I think that's, that scenario has been played out at least. We talked about yeah. the neurovirus scenario has been played out a couple of times, where you basically have a patient zero, and then that person um, has uh, basically buttons um, representing neurovirus to infect other people, and and look at how that how that disease spreads, and so maybe do a little bit of epidemiology or something like that. So so that's my. Uh, you can tell I haven't given this any thought at all. Right. <laughs> I, I sprang it on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and you, you gave me my three bullet points on what your 2019 Ivan Parkin lecture is going to look like. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, so so that, that's what I would do. So what would you yeah. do? So I one of the the I I've been thinking about this uh, a little bit um, mainly because I I don't I would have trouble following up Gary's. I think that I would have I would have talked about some of the similar things that that he shared, <laughs> and so that's I maybe that's why I liked it so much. I was like, oh, this is like I I like I like these stories. I like the. Um, the origin stories uh, as it is for, um, for microbiologists and just hearing about that, um, that progression. And so I would, I think I probably would have told that. Um, but one of the, but now like after seeing that, um, one of the, the common things that that's come up in every one of the round tables or panels that I've been on, um, this week is, is an area that, that I'm, more and more interested in from like a scientific perspective and that's arguments in science or where science doesn't where where there's data out there and people don't see it the same way and we make different decisions on it it came up um yesterday in a in a panel that that I was on related to hand washing time and and you and I've talked a bunch about it and in fact you published paper on it but where you have these different messages everyone's looking at the same data and and really i would it would probably turn out to be kind of like i don't know lecture like soapboxy where where i said we need to have these arguments and then come up with some science based messaging that we were all comfortable with. Um, and, and it came up as, as well in the, in the, um, online grocery store, um, uh, round table as well, where it, the part of the problem with messages is that we're not sort of harmonized and they're confusing. And the comment that I brought up was that we, we don't really even agree on how someone, what a lot is and not that I want FDA to tell us what a lot is, but we just don't have good, um, a common justification for stuff like that. And that confusion leads to, um, to issues when it comes to communicating. So that's where it's like, I think I, I would talk about, it's important to have these arguments, but it's also equally important to resolve some of these arguments and, and look at papers like, um, the leafy green washing paper. Don't, don't wash your pre-washed leafy greens that, um, that you were part of and Linda was part of as a good example of, okay, well, let's look at, there's a whole bunch of different things out here. And now we have a reference that goes through all of that. 
Yeah, so one one minor correction. Um, I was not part of that. Um, oh, I'm sorry. But also, <laughs> um, you didn't say copyright, so I'm going to steal that. <laughs> Damn it. Copy, then you're going to have to pay. I'm, no, I, I won't get paid at all. Uh, so Copyright Ben's idea. Now, copyright, copyright, copyright. Now um, you have to pay me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I probably won't ever do the Ivan Parkin lecture. Um, Don't say that. Of course you will. Oh, look at these people. You, you might not even get to do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, yeah. Uh, I, it's, I, anyway, I thought I'm looking forward um, to uh, Amory's, uh, Amory McNamara's talk uh, today as well. I'm unfortunately going to have to uh, listen to that one afterwards. I'm uh, getting on a plane later this afternoon to go back to Raleigh, but uh, it, yeah. Yeah, I do. I do really like how we have these, uh, as you said, bookends, and that's something that that is. I mean, the last like eight or ten years, I guess we've been doing it. Uh, I can't remember when the when the first uh, one was. I'm sure we can look it up here. Um, but it was. Uh, I, I I like that. That's the nice summation of the of the meeting. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. So, um, oh, and I want to come back to actually. Can you, you want to talk a little bit? Well, so we have we have some feedback uh, from uh, listeners that we should do. We have three items of feedback, but before we do that, let's. I want to talk a little bit about how this because um, uh, you mentioned the the roundtable, the the um, um, online retailer uh, roundtable, and that was specifically focused on recalls, but. This whole area is really exploding, and um, there's a CFP committee uh, that's going to be looking at it. Um, uh, I can I can share because it's now public that I'm I've been appointed the chair of that committee, which is unfortunate because what that means is that I have to spend time being a chair, and I can't like be as I have to like do a, do chair stuff and not do like advocate or, or have a position. So, but it's a great it's a great committee. It looks like on the committee I'm going to have people from Amazon and HelloFresh and Instacart. And it's really, I'm really looking forward to that, the next two years of being part of that. And I think this whole area is just, is blowing up and it's showing that we, you know, the world is changing and, but we have regulatory structures and systems that are just not uh, flexible. And, and, and as I've said repeatedly, and it's a, it's a good point, I'll keep making it, the bacteria don't care whether they're in a delivery vehicle or they're in an Instacart van or whether they're in a, the, the, a consumer's car. They're going to do what they're going to do in response to that environment, but there are regulatory um, structures that are maybe different for those different environments. And so I don't know. It's just it's going to be an interesting uh, couple of years on a variety of fronts in that area. I think. Yeah, I, I agree, and, and I think not only the the one of the last little comments that came up in that roundtable that um, I I find super fascinating. You and I have shared text exchange on this a little bit. Uh, in the past is not just the online, like, let's say tr there's tiers of online retailers, right? So we've got our traditional retailers that move into the online space. And then you've got the online only retailers. And then you've got these like folks that are um, wholesalers or brokers and, and, and they're just moving product back and forth, but, but are using, um, you know, multiple different ways to ship stuff. But the one that I'm really, really interested in is the like most, I don't know, a basic tier, I guess, which is I make really good soup and then I sell it on Facebook. And that challenge from a, that to me, from a regulator standpoint is, is super challenging. I think you asked a really uh, a good question of uh, Rick Bert, Burstrand, Burstrand um, who was on, on our panel 
Um, and I don't know if he fully understood the question because I don't think he answered it. But I think your question was really about how do you, as a as a state regulator, stay ahead or or even know about some of these um, online. Um, you know, uh, I, I make good soup and sell it kind of places. Um, you know, do people just sit there and kind of search through, um, online, um, message boards and Facebook and, uh, and Etsy looking for this stuff. And, and he, he ended up sort of talking about recall and how they, they do stuff. But that to me is, as this, um, area grows, um, it, it has like so many interesting challenges and, um, and, and I, and I think it's, sort of ready for, um, folks in the research community to look at that, right? Like to look at what, who, who are these individuals? How do they make stuff? And then is there, let's, let's do some, like, I don't know if sampling is the right way to, to look at it, but, but what is the, the safety of, of those products? And then, and then be able to make some, um, recommendations on how to place prior, uh, place resources and prioritize looking at that from a regulatory standpoint. Yeah. And, and the, the question that I asked of Rick came about because of this last CFP cycle focusing on this issue. And I, I, at some point, a local person was on the committee. And again, the props to CFP for designing the structure that, that integrates all this information, much in the way that IAFP does. But um, I, asked the, I asked the local person, how do you find these people? And, and her answer, no joke, was we go on Facebook and look for them. And so that's that's just bizarre that that's what they have to do. But of course that's what they have to do because it's, it's just like, like how would you find a restaurant that was operating illegally? We'd walk around that neighborhood, right? So how do you find people that are operating online? Well, you walk around that, that online neighborhood and, and do that. And so it's, uh, I don't know, it's just an interesting, it's again, it's just going to be really interesting, interesting times uh, for the next couple of years as we work through the committee process, as these online retailers, you know, um, kind of continue to evolve and, uh, and as, 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 you know, the, the whole, the whole issue evolves. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's, it's fascinating for you, like for, for that to be the response that you shared uh, with us. And I think that's exactly the right thing to do. The, the question is how do you balance your resources, right? Like, do you, is it once a week that you're, that someone's Googling or spending time on Facebook looking for this? And is that the right, is that the right amount of time? Right. Is that too much, too little? What, and, and that, that's the part that is, is crazy. Um, and it's, that works. Like, I think there's two, two different things here where you've got the selling to consumers, right? So there's a marketing arm that you see somewhere, but then you've got this, um, trading between businesses or ingredients. And, and we had talked a little bit about that on the, on round table as well. That's another fascinating one because now you may not have a local health department, but it's a state regulator, you know, who's looking for a processor that they don't even know like that it exists. And it's, yeah, it, 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 it will only become more of a challenge. Um, one, before we leave this one thing, there are a couple of people have, have um, mentioned, um, in response as I've been walking around IAFP about that round table and, and talking about things like Uber eats and delivery, um, the type services. And my take on it is, I'm less worried about that. Like, and th this was brought up as like, oh, well, you know, and we aren't, we're not even talking about these delivery services and I'm less worried about it f for a couple of reasons. Those, they're not really handling my food, first of all, right? Like it, like they're, they're it, getting a bag of it or a box of it, but there's not a preparation step in their car as far as I know. Um, and, and two, from a, 
I order something, I expect that I'm going to get it within four hours, right? Like if I'm looking at time as a public health control, I'm, I, if I don't get it within four hours, I'm probably not like, I don't want my in and out burger now because I've eaten another meal because it didn't show up. And so I think that that, uh, like it, it, it struck me that that was the next like progression, but I don't see that as nearly as risky as I'm, you know, I make good soup and, 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 and now I'm going to sell it on Facebook and come to the back alley or the parking lot of Walmart and get it. Yes. But, um, yeah, the, hopefully the, the, the Instacart person is not preparing your meal in their, in their car. Um, but I have heard Merlin talk about, uh, Merlin Mann from uh, back to work, who's been a guest on this podcast before, um, uh, talk about, um, <clears throat> I don't think with Instacart, but with uh, you know uh, delivery, uh, supermarket delivery, like he got milk the next day, right? And and so yeah, I mean there is they are handling your food in the sense that they are they are either having or not having appropriate time temperature control. And the other the other issue too, um, and let me let me yeah you know, let me just think how to say this. So I mean. If you cold foods are different than hot foods, and and some of these things are hot foods, and I can tell you I've run some models, and it, if you start with a cold food and it warms up, that's one level of risk. If you start with a hot food and it cools down, that's a different level of risk because you're looking at spore forming organisms. You're, I would assume, for sake of calculations, the spores have been germinated by the heating process, and they're at a temperature that where they can't grow. And then very, very quickly they come into a situation where they are at optimum temperature. And and the and the based on the risk calculations I've done in the past or the growth calculations I've done in the past, it's it's very different, right? And the risk the risk is much higher for those for those hot foods that are being held hot or that are not being held hot. Um, now again, what's the you 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 know are the spores really in a um, germinated phase or not? I mean, what's the lag phase for the cells? And you know if you cook it and then you hold it above 140 or you hold it at 140, we just don't have the science base for that, right? But based on the models and based on some moderately conservative assumptions. I think that there's some risk there. Now, granted, not every food has perfringents, not every food has be serious, but uh, I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I'm wondering, right? And again, you, would you ever see it? You know, it's a small, it's one batch, and you, I, it's, it's, it wouldn't show up on the radar. But at the same time, I mean, there's a, there's a real risk there that needs to be managed. Yeah, and I guess my, I, I agree. I, I guess my, my thought is the, the quality degradation issue happens before the safety comes in and it's not just a quality it's it's that the the whole um the whole business model of of something like uber eats is like you're at somewhere else and i'm going to bring you your food and it's going to be there really quick and 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 so i like i i totally get it in in some cases uh but but in other spots it's like well it did needed to be here <laughs> yeah right and 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 yeah for sure there's a there's a quality issue there, but like I'm a mat, let, let's imagine something that is fairly indestructible quality-wise. Like uh, we were, we will give a free plug to the wine bar um, here in uh, Salt Lake City, uh, where we we dined out at one point, and uh, there's an amazing macaroni and cheese. Well, macaroni and cheese, it's got cheese, it's got macaroni, so you could have spore formers there. Uh, yeah, you can you can 
that's gonna that's gonna be, be temperature abused, and you know what? At the end of that, I'm gonna stick it in my microwave and heat it, or maybe maybe inadequately heat it, or maybe even eat it cold, and it's still gonna be just fine. And it could really be you really could again, depending upon the degree of temperature. Again, yeah. this is me speculating without I don't know pH, don't know water activity, no lab experiments, but could be a problem. Right, right, and and what? Yeah, just just add on that what we haven't calculated is was it temperature abused at the wine bar before getting to before delivery right like that that's all part of the part of the issue and it's btg wine bar that temperature abuses their macaroni and cheese no not true the, but it was the place that we went and had a really nice meal and let's just uh, say it was several days ago and no one's got sick yet yeah, yeah absolutely so pretty good um, hey, so I have a question for you that, that came in. This is not feedback, not listener feedback. I'm making you do my extension work. Uh, and uh, so uh, it, because it has to do with, with this. So I got a, a, a question uh, from an extension agent that said uh, a uh, person uh, cooked beets in water to soften them which is great, uh, and uh, then went to sleep, which is probably not great, left them in the water overnight. The next morning, she continued to process, continued the process correctly. Um, and so what she did was take these beets and then uh, follow uh, So Easy to Preserve uh, pro product for pickled beets and added some vinegar and some spices and, and whatever, and then processed the, the, those um, uh, jars in boiling water for 30 minutes. And so the question was, is this product that has been processed safe to eat uh, with the beets after leaving them in the water overnight instead of processing them immediately? And I thought, like, your conversation was what made me think about it because I think we're, we're talking about the same kind of same kind of thing. Yeah, so let me let me give you two answers. The first answer is they're probably safe, right? Yeah. Because okay, so let's let's walk through the scenario. You take the beets, they come from the ground. Let's say that they got spores on them, right? You you partially cook them, you germinate those spores. Those spores turn into bacteria. The bacteria have a high water activity environment. Let's say for the sake of discussion, they can grow in the beets. They start to grow. They start to grow. They grow overnight. Now you've got massive levels, right? Now, the key question is are, what is the state of those cells? Are they cells or have they resporulated? Okay, and then you take them through the the water bath process. Um, you you pickle them, so now you've got more pH stress. You um, uh, you you take them through a boiling water bath. So if it's a boiling water bath, that means that those vegetative cells are now being destroyed. If they've sporulated and they're at high levels, I'm I guess I, I don't know but again what's the risk of I you know then now we're getting into like I don't really know we need to do some experiments but so if I had to guess I would say that they're a low risk my advice to the consumer would be don't eat them dump them out because we can't if you didn't follow an approved recipe and there is no approved recipe for canning pickling beets that involves overnight incubation on your stove um, <laughs> We yeah. should we should uh, we should tell them to dump them right so so low risk but unknown risk and dump up. I mean, exactly. Not not the same words because I was copyright Don. Uh, but I, what basically what I said was I I wouldn't I, I it would surprise me if these led to illness. I threw in um, uh, maybe the potential for um, staff, but even even then I thought that was pretty low because I was like, well, you've got this boiling water. What did it look like? Do we have a lid on it? Um, and then you left the, left it, was it exposed afterwards? Um, you know, obviously this individual fell asleep, forgot about it. So it wasn't like sticking, uh, her hands in it, um, at, you know, afterwards or sneezing, but, but that, but I'll, I'll, even with all that reasoning, I was like, you know, it's probably fine, but
it might not like the, there it is the right environment if it, if something uh could go wrong um you know I, I wouldn't do it so yep same same thanks thanks for doing my job uh for me i will if you want to add that into your uh promotion and tenure uh packages and impact i mean go go right ahead as a as a collaborative co-author collaborative I, uh, unfortunately, I think, I think I can't be promoted any further. Um, I, I guess I could be like you a board. You, right? You're like, uh, are they going to look at you every five years and say, wow, answer more questions in North Carolina about beats. And I then did. you check that box now. <laughs> I did. I did have my post tenure review quite recently uh, with with my department chair, whose name is Carl Matthews. He's here at this meeting. Uh, good guy. Say hello to him if you if you see him. You probably won't listen to this. Po- I mean, people in the room, if you see him, say hello. Um, but uh, but if you're listening to this afterwards, uh, you probably won't see him because because he, he won't be here in Salt Lake anymore. But a uh, good guy. We had my post tenure review. I'm, apparently, I'm doing okay. Um, I guess. I, I mean, there's there's the level of a board of governors professor or board of regents professor. Um, I don't know how heavily they weigh the the North Carolina beats overnight checkbox. But yeah, I, but again, you do, you just don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I cover all my bases. Yeah. All right. Oh, um, yeah. So we have a little bit of feedback. Where do you want to? Where do you want to start? Uh, let's start with one of the pieces of feedback. <laughs> go, all go right. Let's jump right in. Sure. Um, okay. So I, I like this one um, that came across uh, over. the the weekend. Um, we can, you can read my message, but not my name. Uh, so messages, short time listener, first time writer. So forgive me if I, if you've covered this earlier, I've never worked in food handling. So this would be, be a very naive question. A recent episode of the judge John Hodgman podcast included a question about cleaning utensils in the middle of cooking. When I put raw chicken on the grill, I wash the tongs before I, uh, before I use them to flip later in the process. I don't usually wash again after the flip even though the utensils touch the quote raw side in the process of flipping, is this overly or insufficiently cautious practice? Thank you. Um, so you, you, you had a very lengthy, not, not in a bad way, uh, detailed, uh, answer. Um, and so, uh, do you want to, you want to touch on what you told the uh, listener? Yes, I absolutely will. And, and we'll say that we'll link to the, uh, judge John Hodman, uh, podcast episode. It's episode 371 into the teal. And uh, the listener did share with us that it's towards the end of the episode. So if you want to, if you want to skip through uh, to the end of the episodes to listen, to listen to that, you should. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you know this about me, Ben, I've actually met John Hodgman in real life. We, what? We met, we met at uh, Max FunCon. Oh. He's a, he's a very nice man, um, and um, um, yeah, he's he's just he's just he's just a cool cool guy. So um, I used to listen to that podcast um, back in the day, and then I just got like super busy with other podcasts, and I've had to, I don't know I'm getting behind already at this meeting because I'm not in my normal routine, so I'm I'm getting behind on podcasts. But um, it's it's a good it's a good it's a good podcast. Um, yeah, so so check that one out. Um, uh, so what I would say is um, washing the tongs after touching raw chicken. That's a really good risk reduction practice. It's one that, that I follow. Um, in fact, what I, would, what, I, what I typically do is something a little bit even more extreme than that. Um, I will take those tongs uh, and I will just put them in the sink and then they go in the dishwasher. I don't even try to wash them, hand wash them. I just that like you know that's that's a that's that's a that's a those are those are hot hands those are hot uh, <laughs> channeling my Max Temkin uh, that's a hot hot uh, hot tongs hot tongs hot tongs, hot tongs. Hot tongs. Um, but um, 
the question is, do you rewash after the flip? And, it, and, 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 the, and so the bottom side is probably at temperature, um, at, you know, above 165. The question is, what's the temperature on the top of the piece of chicken? And I would say get a tip-sensitive digital thermometer. It turns out this listener doesn't have one of those, so get one. Get one person. You you get that you get that uh, 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 thermometer, um, and then uh, touch the top, and then uh, wait until that top gets to 160. And if you touch the top and it's not at 160, now you've got a hot thermometer. But then you can retouch it and then re and and then sterilize it, right? And then once the top is at 160, then you can take your fresh clean tongs. You can flip that as many times as you want. So, and again, uh, I I, rec I I recommend the uh, Thermal Pen uh, Mark IV tip sensitive digital thermometer. It's, it's pricey. It's 99 bucks. I know there's a less expensive one that you recommend, and we'll link to both. They're not a sponsor, though. They should be. No, they also, we'll, Yeah, I think Thermal Pen's here. We should mention. We should have walked around and said, hey, we'll. Uh, Give us some thermopens and we'll talk about you. Turns out we didn't even need to do that. We just talked about them. Uh, <laughs> we're not good. Like business is not our thing, right? Like this is we just we just talk. Um, it's a good thing we don't rely on this podcast. To, if I think if we if we actually had to rely on this podcast to make money to earn our living, we would probably be better at it. But but thanks to yes. the, the luxury of having the awesome jobs that we do, we don't have to do that. But yeah, thermopen. If you're listening, you should sponsor. Yeah, and Comark uh, as well, because that's what, what I like to use. Uh, <laughs> um, so I, I, I mean, I, I do a really similar thing. We, we've, I don't know if we've talked in this much detail about it in a previous podcast or not, but I do. Um, typically, I'll use two sets of tongs, and I will have uh, hot tongs, and then I have the the final tongs that that I just it doesn't matter what it is. The whole time it's hot, and then uh, I have a set of tongs that I take stuff off the grill with. Um, and there are, there've been lots of times where I have, um, it, it maybe had, well, so if we have people over and I'm like doing multiple things where I've like hot dogs and, and, uh, chicken and, and burgers, and they're all coming off at different times and I got to flip them. I've done a hot tongs and then a wash of those hot tongs and then a final clean tongs. <laughs> and I, yeah, so there, there you go. That's, uh, that's my, my approach. I, I haven't, um, I've I've not really used like that. Um, uh, leave the tongs on the grill to cook off and and sterilize, and to, mainly because I, I did it once and then I grabbed the tongs and they burnt my hands, and I was like, oh, that was dumb. That was not like there. It turns out um, that metal's a pretty good conductor when it, it's on a 450 degree grill, and so I was like, okay, don't do that again. <laughs> but people do that. Like I've I've seen that um, quite often where they'll leave, especially if it's like a like a a, a flipper or a lifter, just like stuck inside the grill. And I, and, but what I work, like truthfully, what I worry about is I don't know what the ambient temperature is, is getting to, and it's not touching the grill and all that kind of jazz. Probably a pretty safe practice, but you know, it's, yeah, it, it could be problematic. So, and, and I, I want to say too, that you, your, your tip sensitive digital thermometer has penetrated my brain because, uh, I typed Comark in and then, uh, uh, Google was not helpful. And then I'm like, Oh, isn't it like PD or something? <laughs> it was. And then boom, right there. So we'll link to, we'll link to that. You know what we could do to make money as we could do uh, okay. Amazon links, but, um, I, I'm oh. really, I don't, I don't, I, I, it's, I know how to do it. It's just, I'm lazy. So yeah, I'm not gonna was, do that. We're, we're not going to do that. Affiliate <laughs> links. That's what they're called. That's right. That's right. 
Um, okay. So another uh, bit of feedback, uh, and this came from a listener who said, uh, share all details freely. Um, and this is from a listener named uh, Logan Tegman. And I would, uh, as we'll, we'll have to probably give Logan uh, an, a name, uh, like uh, let's call it uh, deep scores on doors. Um, and the reason is the question, the question that the listener has is recently a county near me, King County, Washington has started requiring restaurants to post food safety rating signs on the door with a scale of needs to improve. Okay. Good. And excellent. I like the thought behind it, but I find the messaging confusing since it's unclear on the sign, what these ratings mean or what offense a restaurant is committed to receive the rating below. Excellent. Below. Excellent. Um, which leads uh, most people uh, I know to completely ignore them. What are your thoughts on a system like this? Is this something that you're aware of in any locales trying to do? And does it have a history of success? And uh, and then Logan shared the uh, the website. Um, so I and you you'd see CC'd me uh, on this response to Logan, and um, I I've been sort of around this world for a while. Doug, um, Doug Powell from uh, Barflog fame. Uh, and I talked maybe 10 years about this, uh, 10 years ago about this is, uh, we're part of sort of the evaluation of it in Toronto. And then we're asked to, uh, weigh in on, um, posting of scores in New Zealand. And, and Doug had a graduate student, um, Katie, Katie Fillion. Then she's got a new name now because she's married, but I can't remember. Anyway, Katie, who doesn't listen to the show, it doesn't matter, um, wrote a, a couple of papers on this. And um, it, there, here's like, I guess my, my basic approach. Um, we need to share restaurant inspection reports, like, for, like bullet number one, somehow. Um, it, the um, deep scores on doors, uh, Logan brings up ex exactly the issue with posting anything, a score, a grade, a smiley face, uh, some sort of like a banner, whatever it is, um, these words is that the definitions for them aren't super clear. And what I really care about as someone who might be using this is what is in the report. And so, so to me, I've, and this has evolved a little bit for, for me, I would love to see what exactly the violations were on that placard, right? Like they're updated every time that, that you, that you do it. What I, in the, in my previous thoughts on this was, well, I'll go to the website and I'll check out the, the um, the inspection, uh, or maybe, you know, put a QR code on it and then it can, I can bring it up, which uh, people still use QR codes apparently. Um, and so that to me, that that's a good way to do it, but I don't like, why not just put like has trouble maintaining temperature on the, on it. If, especially if it's not an, an, an excellent, I don't, I, I think that would encourage someone to get reinspected and maybe control temperatures a little better than, you know, a 93.5, which seems good, but who knows what that, what it really means. Yeah. And I guess so uh, on the one hand, as a risk modeler and a big fan of uh, Ruth Patreon's work, which we'll mention again on the podcast. Um, oh, and by the way, she, it's uh, she's, she's an incoming uh, board member at IFP. So, so props to that Ruth. Um, uh, you know, I, I would want to get access to all that data to do my own analysis. But the, but a better question is, what's the appropriate risk communication to the general public? And so maybe it's something like has difficulty maintaining temperatures. Temperature abuse can lead to growth of foodborne pathogens and increases risk. So some sort of common language, you know, uh, checked for reading level, uh, you know, that, that gets the science right and gets the communication piece right so that people know uh, what's going on. 
that. And and I have to say, um, I, I think I think his name um, should not be Deep Scores on Doors because that's a mouthful. But maybe like uh, since his actual name is Logan, and he did say we can share all details freely. Uh, like maybe uh, Deep Snicked. You know that's a that's a comic book reference. Oh my gosh! Yes, it's a good good job. Uh, excellent, um, cool. Or uh, maybe like a deep uh, adamantium. <laughs> um, that also works. Yeah. Okay, so uh, th- our third little uh, third piece of feedback here is um, something uh, that says uh, you can read my message but not my name, um, and so I'm gonna call this uh, deep peanut butter. Um, message, uh, I, and this is an asterisk and I'm going to say this, uh, I don't know like exactly how to pronounce this, uh, in real life, but it's asterisk, asterisk, love, asterisk, asterisk, uh, this podcast, um, two part peanut butter question, aflatoxin mold in jarred peanut butter, a concern question mark. I buy T Joe's on organic, just peanuts, not skippy type loaded with other ingredients. And part two, how safe are the peanut butter grinders in stores? Maybe ground peanuts are a TCS food, but how about the accumulation of peanut grinding over time and the machine itself starting to grow bugs? Uh, keep it up, guys. I get so excited when I see a new episode in my feed. Well, thank you, Deep Peanut Butter. Um, so uh, you you took a took a stab at uh, at answering this, so I'll let you uh, I'll let you jump in. Sure. So uh, I, first of all, it's a great question. Um, uh, FDA has limits on the levels of aflatoxin for peanuts and for foods, you know, generically foods, and that is in their um, uh, information on uh, action levels, and we'll link to the website. Um, so the, sh- the short answer is, assuming that everybody's following the rules, and I know peanut producers are really serious about this, so they're, they, they probably peanut butter is okay. It's not a concern. Uh, companies do do quite a bit of testing uh, to ensure uh, compliance and uh, with, with aflatoxin levels. Um, in terms of grinder safety, that's more complicated. So I suppose if you're using the same grinder for ground nuts and tree nuts, and if I if I'm a, have a tree nut allergy and people are grinding almonds, and I'm allergic to almonds, but but I but I like peanut butter, well, I'm for sure not going to use that grinder on the off chance that somebody would 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 you know cross contaminate and, and get an allergy issue. Um, on the other hand, if I'm allergic to almonds, I'm probably just not wanting to go anywhere in that aisle at all and I'm going to get my peanut butter in a jar um, where I don't have to interact with almonds or almond dust. Um, Peanuts are not a TCS food. Peanut butter is not a TCS food. TCS stands for Time Temperature Control for Safety. Um, uh, uh, tree nuts are not TCS foods either. All, again, all because of low water activity. Um, so I don't think it's an issue unless there's a situation where where water is being added. Now I suppose there's, I suppose if you have a batch of peanuts that has salmonella in it, and then you you inoculate the grinder, you will then clean that grinder with subsequent salmonella-free peanuts, making them contaminated. And so that's a risk, but there isn't amplification of risk. Um, so I don't. It's again. It wouldn't. It's. It's not. I mean, there's no such thing as zero risk. So there's some level of risk there. I think that the level of risk is fairly low. Um, personally, I mean, I like. I like the idea that you're going to grind your own peanuts. I mean, I would support that. Um, we we and I appreciate that the listener doesn't um, want to buy peanut butters with a lot of. You know, not preservatives, but a lot of added sugar and stuff like that, and and that's the kind we have in my house uh, because that's what my wife makes me buy, and I've learned to like it, and it's just fine. Thank you very much. Uh, If it's not sweet enough, uh, actually, this is this is this is a a, a tip here. Um, You can add honey, or you can add jam, 
what I like is golden syrup. So get yourself some Lyle's golden syrup from the UK. Add that to your peanut butter. Oh, it's, it's just, my mouth is watering just thinking about it. Um, <laughs> so, um, but uh, relatively low risk. So, yeah, and uh, just to, to add to this uh, conversation, uh, we'll link to a paper um, in show notes from 2004 from, uh, I would say, Friends of the Pod, uh, Steve Kenny and Larry Beauchat. Um And uh, it's, I, I know Steve, I've known Steve for a long time, and I think he listens to the podcast, so shout out uh, to Steve. But uh, he, he did some work in his uh, graduate work looking at listeria survival in peanut products. And um, the, the, again, I think this is, um, the difference between, you know, public health risk and regulatory uh, potential, it wouldn't surprise me in a grinder to find some listeria. Um, and depending on what's going to be ground through that, right? Like the, but is it going to grow? No. Um, and that kind of what, what Steve showed, um, Steve and Larry showed here is that, um, in a low moisture, uh, kind of situation, like we're talking about here, um, Listeria would survive for quite some time if it was placed there. Um, what, is there a public health risk? Uh, it, there'd have to be a lot of Listeria that goes into it, um, at the, at the start because you're, you're not going to get growth, but, but it would not, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all if, um, someone did, uh, a, uh, microbiological survey of grinders in retail stores, like coffee grinders and peanut grinders, and just found a ton of listeria there. Cause if you look for it, it's probably there. Yeah. And I would say I'm, I am uh, much more worried about salmonella, um, because it's a low dose pathogen versus listeria, which is a high dose pathogen. Um, sorry, FDA, you're wrong about that. Uh, Mickey, Mickey keeps trying to get me to come at him, uh, to talk about listeria risk. But, uh, anyway, um, he's probably seen the, that paper I wrote for, uh, Dr. Freeze, um, uh, calling out, uh, FDA on that. So, yeah, yeah. Well, all right. So I'm going to move, speaking of Dr. Freeze, um, and uh, low dose listeria. I'm going to move to some some like food safety news. Um, and so uh, last week there was this kind of announcement from EFSA, the European Food Safety uh, Authority Agency, and some folks in the UK about a pretty decent long term um, outbreak linked to frozen corn and fro you know, frozen vegetables from listeria. Now um, here here it is. Uh, goes started in, in 2015, 38 illnesses and nine deaths. And so, again, I think we, you, know, you and I, we could really call this just listeria fun talk because uh, we like listeria and we like this, uh, I think, complicating uh, pathogen from a regulatory and, and from a risk standpoint. Um, but this this is one where. Um, it, you know, exactly some of the stuff that, um, that you've been contributing to and that we talk about as part of the AFI scientific, uh, uh, advisory group. Um, but, but here, here you go, this really long shelf life type product that's frozen, um, and, um, probably lots and lots of exposure, um, uh, to it. Uh, and I would say, um, so, you know, some of the stuff that we've talked about in the past in uh, frozen corn is it would be one of the frozen products that is not ready to eat, that would be consumed ready to eat quite frequently um, in uh, maybe in a salad or in a salsa just added in uh, without a without a cook uh, step. And, um, and, and you know, here we go, uh, a, a long, uh, long-term uh, outbreak uh, associated with it. And one, it's been linked to... Um, one processor in Hungary, but the processor uh, 
sold their uh, corn to many different companies that incorporated corn as an ingredient into other frozen dishes. And and sorry, I missed. Is this is this an outbreak? It is. It's how an many, outbreak. Yeah, how many nine, cases? Uh, Thirty-eight illnesses and nine deaths. Yeah, over over a, almost a three-year period, which is you know that's how we see these frozen food outbreaks. Not a you know a three-week kind of thing like you would see at a restaurant. And we will link to that in show notes. Cool. So, um, I, uh, I want to talk about, um, this, uh, situation that happened, uh, right in your neck of the woods. Ah, um, yes. uh, and I will read to you from the article from, um, uh, uh a, a local website, uh, that the title of the article is quote, exposure to feces, close quote, blamed after dozens sickened at neighborhood cookout. Uh, more than a dozen people from the same East Charlotte apartment complex were rushed to the hospital after getting sick Sunday afternoon following a birthday party and cookout. Um, emergency responders were first called to Forest uh, Hills townhomes um, around 6 p.m. Paramedics believe the illness was linked to a given neighborhood. The birthday car party and the cookout happened on Saturday night. So Saturday night, they had this wonderful um, neighborhood event. And then um, uh, Sunday afternoon, about four, 24 hours later, people started getting sick. So um, turns out it was Shigella, which we know is a microorganism that is able to cause illness at uh, relatively low doses. Um, I think it might even have an uh, ID50 or a, a median infectious dose lower than salmonella. At least it was last time I looked at it. So it's a pretty, uh, it, 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 it causes a lot of secondary infections, I think, in part because of that uh, low uh, um, median infectious dose. So, um, so have you done any more digging into this? Do you have any more to update or do you have any comments? Um, I, not, no, I don't think there's been any sort of updates as, as of yet. Um, it, uh, I, I'm interested in, uh, to know how, um, how how the Shigella was was confirmed, and if this is if they were looking for um, like an uh, you know using PCR and looking for an STX gene, where maybe it looks like it's Shigella, but it might be something a little more serious. Like that, that's it. Maybe Shigatoxin producing E. coli. The reason I say that is. And this is where some of the the uh, online public health chatter kind of went with this outbreak is just the vast number of hospitalizations uh, associated with this. So it was um, it, it, something. And I, I'll see if I can find another article, but it was about 40 people got sick, but over half of them were hospitalized. Um, and that that doesn't sound like Shigella to me. Like like it doesn't. It sounds a little more. Um, serious, but, but I don't know. I mean, and that's me placing what, you know, why I would go to the hospital versus why someone else would go to the hospital with these illnesses. But it's, uh, it, you know, maybe, maybe we look, maybe the markers, the, um, with maybe the molecular uh, detection shows Shigella, but when we actually get to the culture results, it's not Shigella. Well, or it could be a particularly virulent strain of Shigella, or it might be just really gross um, hygiene practices and just people got really high doses, right? Because um, it is a lot of people sick. It's a fairly, sh it's a 24 hour incubation period, which is fairly short. Yep. So um, yeah, it might be, it might be something like that. But yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought about the possibility that it might be something else and not actually be Shigella. Um, so that's a good point. Yeah. And, and it all came really quick, right? Like, so if the, um, the outbreak was, uh, Saturday night and I think that was like June 30th, 
Um, if I look back at my magic calendar and by Monday we have, it's, it's Shigella. And so that seems a little bit quick since most of the people went to, went, went to the hospital on Sunday. So, so maybe that, that, you know, that's what we're, what we're seeing. But as you said, maybe it's, uh, there's some other, uh, some other factors there, um, as well. So since we since we are doing a live show, uh, we haven't yeah. really talked about the fact that that w this room is is standing room only. It is packed with people. <laughs> Theater of the mind, folks. No, there's uh, it looks like there's about a half a dozen or so uh, dedicated fans that showed up. So, so first of all, thank. I've been studiously avoiding making eye contact with all of you because I can barely barely make eye contact with this guy. So uh, thank you all for coming. We're gonna we'll acknowledge your presence in the room. Um, so what I, what we what I think we'll. What I'm going to suggest that we do um, is not let these people talk because it's just about you and me. No, no, that's not true. Yeah. Um, so, so what I would say is, if you want to write down what we've done before um, yeah. in these live versions, is you can write down a question and we'll we'll read your question and we'll answer it. Um, if you want to come on mic, uh, you can just come down to uh, to my mic or to Ben's mic. For, for those that are not here, uh, Ben and I are sitting at opposite ends of the table um, uh, to try to reduce uh, audio bleed. Um, and my mic's in a shoe. And, and my mic's in a shock mount, but I'm also holding it in my hand, and it kind of digs in and it hurts a little bit. Um, but uh, I'm <laughs> so I don't know why I'm doing this, but I think to avoid <laughs> bending over uh, uh, on the table, and and I've just been trying to studiously uh, mute myself too, so that you don't pick up the ambient uh, mic tapping noises. So so. Write down your question if you'd like. Um, you can go to Ben's mic and ask a question. You can come to my mic and ask a question. You can give us your real name. You can give us your fake made-up name. That's that's all fine too. So be thinking about that. We're not. We, we, I don't want to have an awkward pause where no one no one wants to say anything. So, right, so right. be thinking about what you want to do. It's like karaoke, right? Like you need to you need to kind of get your nerve up. We have no drinks here. Um, <laughs> that we know of. That, I mean, that we know of. I see people with cups with lids on them. Who knows what's in there, right? <laughs> Oh, oh, I asked for water. They brought me gin. Uh. It's, it's a clear liquid and it's water as far right. as you know. Um, all right, so let's do, uh, let's do one more um, uh, 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 news item. And, uh, and I, I want to, this, uh, this is a gruesome one. Um, German man suspected of murdering 21 co-workers by poisoning their food. And this is not a, this is a literal food poisoning, not a foodborne disease one. Um, so this is, this came out, this was on uh, a Fox News website, um, not fake news as far as I know. Um, uh, authorities in Germany launched a probe Wednesday, and this came out on June 28th, uh, Wednesday, into a string of 21 deaths over nearly two decades after the arrest of a man suspected of trying to poison a co-worker's sandwich. A 56-year-old man, identified as Klaus O., was detained back in May after surveillance video showed him opening a colleague's lunchbox and putting a suspicious powder inside. Um, in the beginning, we thought it was a prank and not a murder attempt. It turns out uh, this guy was dosing people with lead acetate. So uh, what do you think about this, Ben? And, and where do you keep your lunch at work? And how much do you trust your coworkers? Well, <laughs> so I, it's great. Uh, I, uh, I'll start with, I trust my coworkers quite, a, quite, uh, quite a lot. I trust that they're not trying to murder me with lead acetate. Uh, I also, um, not, not related to that. Don't leave my lunch around a lot, uh, around them. Um, but uh, I, the, so the most fascinating part about this to me was this, um, 
this uh, passage of the 21 deaths since 2000 in this in this company were all employees of the company the man worked for, included quite a, a remarkably high number of heart attacks and cancers, according to police. And I, I you know, we. Uh, not to get into uh, like death uh, food safety talk, but we, you know, we both work in, in areas with lots of people. I, I've worked in the same department for 10 years. Um, in those 10 years, like one person has died in, you know, while working there that, uh, you know, un- unexpectedly, well, one person total. I don't, I don't know anybody. If I worked at a company where like people over a, a, you know, 15, 18 year period where there was 20 deaths, just like random stuff with people that seemed uh, kind of, uh, you know, healthy and, in general, I think that's really like that, like looking back on it, right? Like that would be, wow, that's, that's kind of, kind of crazy. So that, that was the one that, that really uh, stuck out for me. And so, um, I'll just read from the article here on, uh, three other workers at the company in Schloss, how Stuckenbrock, uh, located south of Beetle, Beetleveld are also to have fallen ill from heavy metal poisoning. Um, one employee, employee has been in a coma for two years. A man who worked with the suspect for 30 years told Bill his kidneys failed suddenly three months ago. He's unable to drink more than a few ounces of liquid a day without suffering severe cramps. So not only are we looking at like 21 deaths, but then there are these other like, um, you know, long-term health, uh, uh, issues just related to working at this, uh, at this place. And, you know, you know, uh, maybe all linked to, you know, suspected that Klaus, Oh yeah. Um, and this kind of follows up on, we've had conversations over the last couple of podcasts about intentional contamination and, uh, people trying to poison Dawn out of vending machines and, and not, and, and whatever. And so, yeah, this is a, uh, when we saw this, I was like, this, this is notable just based on some of the stuff that we've been talking about, uh, in the past. Cool. So, um, yeah, I mean, let's, well, let's open, open stuff up for, for questions and invite anybody who wants to, uh, ask a question. Uh, and, and again, as Don said, we can write them down or we can pass, pass the mic around. It'll get a little, um, move, movement here as I'm all tied up to this. Um, but yeah, any, any, uh, any listeners want to, want to jump on the mic or ask anything? Let, let the record show that everyone is sitting here awkwardly in silence uh, and, and, oh, now awkwardly laughing. So it's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. We'll do, we'll do yeah. a show without you. We do it every, every week. We do. Oh, oh yeah, we, right, right, we, got, we got a brave right. soul coming up. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to introduce myself? Yeah. or? Please. Oh, cool. Uh, my name is John Jorgensen, and I'm a, a master's student, graduate student at Oregon State University. I work under Dr. Ivana Kovacevic and Dr. Joyway Cusick. And I guess my question would be to you guys, uh, I work with the produce industry a lot, and um, I'm just kind of having trouble communicating food safety with them, just uh, certain things. So just tips on communicating, uh, excuse me, food safety with the industry. So I think what would help us answer your question, um, John, is can you give us um, a little, can you give us an example of a communication that hasn't gone well, or can you give us an example of like the kind of difficulty that you're like, be, be a little bit more specific. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, I guess um, I had an incident with a company where I'm doing environmental monitoring and uh, we had all negatives for some pathogens we were testing and they were, you know, extremely confident in that basically saying, um, you know, oh, well, this is great. We'd have nothing to worry about. And that's not necessarily true. You know, I'm still up and coming in this industry. So, um, yeah, I guess that would be a, a good example. 
Perfect. Yeah. yeah. So, and this is this is a common uh, common thing that comes up. Um, I had it just the other day. Uh, Talked to somebody uh, wants to get into the food, either wants to get in the food business or in the food business, and, and talking about some something and. And I haven't ever made anyone sick, right? And it's like, well, as far as you know, you've never made anyone sick. And I think one of the key the key points to communicate in this case, and and I'm not sure, and I'll talk for a little bit, and then we'll let, let Ben give a better answer. But um, I think that the issue the real the issue is that 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 pathogens when they're present in foods are present incredibly sporadically, right? That's why there's this whole move. That's why HACCP exists. HACCP exists because you cannot test safety into the end product. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not value in testing the end product. That's a separate discussion. But if you look at the level of contamination and the and the sporadicness or the, the frequency of contamination in foods, it's very low. And so just because you don't find something in, in terms of environmental monitoring or you don't find something in the food doesn't mean it's not a risk. And the other thing I would say, too, in terms of never finding anything in their environmental monitoring, I have a, had a great conversation, which I relate on the podcast, and I will relay it again because it's really telling, is and this is a conversation I had with Don Zink uh, when he was still worked for FDA, and he said that FDA could go into a, a facility watch the way the company was doing their environmental monitoring and then predict whether FDA would find something or not. And so the, when, when the company would do their environmental monitoring, if they were swabbing the tabletops or the obviously accessible places, FDA said, you know what? We're going to go in and we're going to find salmonella. We're going to find listeria. If when FDA walked in, he saw people crawling underneath things and sliding under equipment and swabbing the bottoms of forklifts and getting into the really hard to reach places, and they and they were not finding salmonella and listeria, he said the FDA wouldn't find it either because they were really doing a good job. And so, so kind of those those two points: levels of contamination are low. And then again, the other thing too, sort of related to the first point, is you can you can do. I've done risk calculations where if you have a million servings of product and you have one in a hundred samples contaminated at a level of one cell, and you have cell million, millions of servings, you're going to have an outbreak, right? Because that that and you're never going to find that, right? And so you've got to have these passive programs, preventive programs in place. So that, that's that's kind of would, would be the three points I would make to them off the top of my head. Ben? Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And I think the um, to build on that, just the limitation of why we do environmental sampling and and not not to, it, it's not to give a, hey, we're everything that we produce is safe, right? It, like it's part of everything that goes on in, in food safety. And I would I would use, I'm, I'm a fan of, of using um, case studies. There's a lot that are available. If you look at um, uh, some of the FDA action follow-up reports from outbreaks, I think about the Dole um, uh, listeria. I think it was a listeria outbreak um, linked to uh, Dole plant in Ohio uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and there's a really a whole bunch of stuff in on environmental sampling in the um, public records of either 483s or, you know, those inspection follow-up, uh, uh, reports or the, uh, outbreak follow-up that, that shows you can go to this company and say like, yeah, this is, these people also really had a, you know, not a lot of, um, uh, positive samples coming back from environmental sampling, but had all these other things that led to this, this outbreak. This is one component. It's not, uh, not enough to sort of just like have this optimism bias that, that, okay, we're, we're, we're checking through, but, but be able to use those like absolute stories from other spots that have had, um, you know, these, these tragic, uh, outcomes. And, and, in my, my experience with, 
not not just produce industry, but restaurants um, and others. Um, it's it is difficult to convince somebody in the theoretical and and like having the conversation that um, that that Don talked about about understanding you know risk and, and calculations. They they need to have an understanding of that. And then to supplement that with, and here's a real thing. Here's, here is an actual example of someone who looked just like you and you know their name because it's on this report and this is what's happened, um, since then. And, and they, they had a similar, um, response to their environmental, um, sampling as well. And so to, to really try to bring those, those real, uh, examples into it. And the other thing I'll add, um, not because it's particularly relevant here, um, but because I'm, I'm shamelessly self-promoting, um, there's, there's an article uh, that I wrote with Bob Buchanan called FISMA, Testing as a Tool for Verifying Preventive Controls. It talks about a lot of these testing issues. And it's, it's actually a, an assignment, that uh, a consulting assignment that Bob and I had for Pew Charitable Trust, but Pew was um, generous enough to allow us to submit it for publication in Food Protection Trends. And it, it does, it's a, it's, a pretty good, it's a pretty good summary. And also, as I, I mentioned it, I mean, obviously, shameless self-promotion, but I did hear from uh, actually two people at this meeting who said that it's just an incredibly useful document to them. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll link to that as, as well, and that may be useful for you, just to inform the background for some of these discussions. Cool. Thanks, John. Yeah, thank you. All right. Hi, I'm Daniel. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> um, so this is my first IFP conference. I'm not a I'm not a member of IFP. I think after being here, I definitely want to join. Um, so I work in industry, and I'm just wondering how how can I use my IFP membership as a resource? What are the resources? What kind of what what how can I use this to to better my career? First thing I have to ask is, did David Tharp send you here as a plant? <laughs> so, um, so, so first of all, let's uh, let's let's promote IAFP. Um, the cost of membership is is very very minimal. It's fifty five dollars a year. It's half of that for students. Um, uh, one of the things that you get um, uh, for your membership, absolutely, you know, as a, as a free benefit for your fifty five dollar membership, is you get um, the IAFP report. I think is what it's called. Yep. Uh, this is a regular email um, uh, list that comes out. Um, if you do, if you do think you should be getting it and you're not, um, it may be going to your spam. We've had some reports at this meeting of it getting classed as spam for some people. Um, uh, colleague um, and uh, and uh, Canadian uh, Jeff Farber edits that and does a really terrific job of pulling together uh, this this email document that goes out with links to everything that's current. So that's a great way to keep up. Um, I would say uh, so. Certainly, there are benefits to being a member, even if you don't come to the annual meeting. So first of all, props for coming to the annual meeting, I think that a discount at the annual a discount for attendance at the annual meeting is is tremendously is is, is I mean that you should it, you should come to the annual meeting. But I realize that not everybody may be able to do that because of costs, etc. But it, the coming coming to the meeting, talking in the hallways, you know, hearing Gary Acuff uh, tell his stories about um, chopsticks and and heroes is 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 just it's it's worth the price of admission right there. Um, uh, in addition to uh, in addition to that, even if you don't um, come to the meeting and, and you do get the food uh, um, IFP uh, report, um, 
uh, you can get information about webinars, and then you have, if you're a member, you have access to the entire back catalog of webinars, which are a great way um, to learn things. Um, and I think included is 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 FPT included in membership? Yeah. So you get you get food protection trends included in membership. What you don't get is the peer-reviewed journal uh, Journal of Food Protection. Uh, but for unless you're a researcher or a scientist, Journal of Food Protection is probably not. There we go. We have uh, we have an audience member uh, uh, displaying. Uh, copy of Food Protection Trends. Oh, and JFP, another David Tharp plant here, shamelessly marketing and promoting. So, so thanks, uh, thanks for that, Alex. Um, uh, yeah. So um, the men membership uh, benefits are tremendous. Uh, we will um, we will link to a document that uh, Ben, a web page that Ben just shared with me a moment ago on membership. The other thing that I'll say is that. Um, uh, although you may be a member of IAFP, you can also join your local affiliate. Um, that is a separate registration fee and price, but obviously those meetings um, may be more local to you. Um, one of the benefits of being an affiliate is that you can bring in a board member or a past board member as a speaker to your local meeting once a year, and so there's a, that's a way of kind of getting some of this, this content through meetings as well. So I encourage you, if you don't already belong to your local uh, IAFP affiliate, you can find out where the affiliates are that are near to you on the, on the website. So there's that's a couple of a uh, couple of immediate reactions. Ben, did you have anything else? Yeah, a couple of other things. But I have to turn my mic on. Uh, a couple other things uh, that that I, I gleaned from the membership. One is, as a member, um, you get a discount on previous meeting. Um, presentations as well. So for those other meetings that you haven't been to, if there was something that was presented a couple of years ago, you can get in the archives and hear all, all that um, and see those see those recording slides. Um, and uh, the the second one, and, and something that Don and I actually use quite often uh, when an, uh, an incident or outbreak comes up, is the um, access to the IAFP member database. And so just by logging in. Um, especially from a question networking, who works in this area, it's a really friendly, um, uh, friendly database to, to search on by sector, by names, by companies to find out who are or IAFP members that you can then connect with for questions. And we use it, I mean, literally all the time. I use it in um, in some of the research things that, that we do. I had a graduate student, Chris Rupert, who his uh, focus was on retail food safety um, and looking at cantaloupes. And so he constructed from the IFP membership database, like 150 people that are doing food safety in retail and then said, okay, I'm going to survey these folks. Um, and, and so you can't really glean that outside of of the membership um, to get a sense of who's in this, what you know, what are the what are their names with all their their contact information, um, and um, the um, yeah yeah that's the, those are the those are the big ones and it's and as Don said it's like super cheap right like it's fifty bucks or fifty five dollars whatever whatever it costs it's it's totally um, totally worth it and then you get a discount uh, to come to the meeting. Yeah, and the, the, the board made a decision a number of years ago to, to lower that fee um, to $55, um, which was a bold move because that you're lowering revenue, but it turns out it's been a tremendous uh, benefit to us. It's certainly driven uh, membership from areas of the world where, where $55 US is, is, is not an insig insignificant amount of money, and so um, it's, it's really helped to, us to, to drive membership and, and provide those member benefits to people that, that don't necessarily come to the annual meeting. Yeah. And one, one other thing I'll add um, is it gives you um, like you're in the club of in the know, 
right? Like if, if we go somewhere and I talk to somebody um, about food safety and they work for a company and they're doing food safety and I, and you engage in this conversation on like, have you ever been to IFP? And if they're like, I don't even know what IFP is, I, I get a sense that they're missing this entire sector of important. This is where the science is presented um, every year. This is where people wait to to get the new stuff out. And and it's the the underpinning organization for, I think, every everything that we do in the field. So it's it, it gets you like that little chip of a membership uh, of into that into that club and being able to say, oh, yeah, I know what IFP is all about um, as well. So it's yeah, <laughs> there's a, a surface reasons to, to, to join. Very good. So um, one more one more bit of, I don't know if you call it follow-up. Um, uh, we do, a, a, in preparation for this meeting, um, I was inspired by another podcast, uh, a tech podcast that I listened to. Uh, they uh, were going to a nerd conference, uh, WWDC, which is, which is uh, IAFP for Apple developers. Um, and uh, they were having stickers for their podcast, so we got stickers for Food Safety Talk. We have some here in the room, um, but I will also let everyone know who's listening to this who's not in the room, which is probably most. I, uh, at least half of our listeners are probably are in the not in the room. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you want stickers, um, just let me know and we'll send some out to you. Yeah. Um, ben has some. I have some. Um, we'll give them away. Keep giving them away till they're gone. So, Absolutely. Cool. Um, any, any other uh, questions in the room? If not, as they say on the podcast, Ben, I think that's a show. <laughs> That's a show. Thanks. Uh, thanks everybody for, for joining us and finding the super secret room. Um, the, we have, <laughs> we've recorded this, uh, IAFP in like closets and one year it was in a room that was like above the trade show floor and there's just f forklifts moving back and forth. So it's nice that we've progressed to an actual like meeting room, uh, and, and we could sit down with, with enough chairs. Uh, but, but I, I mean, as always, uh, you know, to, to leave on this note, we Don and I um, get to go to meetings and conferences, and we speak a lot. And it's it's always very heartening when someone comes up and says, "Hey, I listen to the podcast," and you know, and shares what what they get out of it, or or that they think we're funny, or that they are arguing with us over something that we said. Whatever it is, like positive or negative, it's very um, it's it's very cool that that we. Um, that we have listeners that that are that come up to us and, and introduce themselves and and we you know Don and I listen to podcasts and and we've had the I, I think similar experiences when we meet people that of the podcasts that we listen to and it's it's just super cool. Someone said to me last night when we were um, when we were at one of the receptions that uh, she, you know she's like I feel like you're my best friend but you don't know it because because <laughs> we. I only listen to you and I've never talked to you about stuff. And that was really, it was really cool. And, and that's, I mean, a, a big reason why we, why we do this is, is to be able to, uh, um, to connect with folks and, and, and it's, it's fun to obviously to talk to each other, but also, um, to create this like network of, uh, of people that, that listen, that we get to meet at these meetings and have this connection with that, that we wouldn't have before. So thank you. And, and understand when you meet us, we know exactly what that feels like because we've been our podcast heroes and we know we feel that we know them intimately and we also know that we don't know them intimately yes. because there is something yes. about, there's something about a podcast and something about just having that voice in your ears it's why talk radio i think was popular for for so many years and, and maybe still is I don't, I don't listen but um uh and the other thing too uh people do introduce um themselves to us 
and occasionally we introduce our, ourselves to people and we had the most delightful experience uh, the other day at a cocktail hour um, where uh, one of our, our colleagues said, hey, you know, one of my students listens to your podcast and she's standing right over there. Would you, would you go introduce yourself to her? And, and it was just, it was, it was, it was, it was a little, it was a little bit mean because she was like super flustered and excited, but it was, it was also a great, uh, just a, a, just a huge fun thing. And anyway, it was just really fun. So we, we do, we really do enjoy, um, meeting you and we're so glad that all of you could come here today. It was fantastic. Um, uh, please, uh, please do keep spreading the word about the podcast. We do it, uh, cause it's a labor of love and cause we want to communicate this information and we're just so glad that all of you do listen. Um, please, uh, as they say, uh, on all the shows, uh, like, and subscribe. Um, if you haven't left us a review in iTunes, uh, please do come get, leave us a review. Um, theoretically it helps more people find the show. I'm not sure if that's true, but they do say it on all the podcasts. So there you go. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Don. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.